John Wesley, you've heard the name John Wesley before. He and Charles Wesley were some of the great evangelists in 17, 1800s. His testimony, I love, I love reading testimonies. I'm going to read a little bit of one here in a second. But John Wesley, before he was a believer, was on a ship crossing the ocean with a bunch of Moravians who uh, were the first kind of missionary movement. And um, it, was, it was four consecutive storms battering their boat. And the fourth, he wrote in his journal, was the worst. And all he said was terrified. <laughs> They, uh, he, he testified later they, they had crested an enormous wave and came down the other side when an even bigger wave came over their ship and, and just crashed upon them. He thought he was going to die. He was hanging on for dear life. And the whole time, these Moravians, the husbands, the wives, the children, with perfect calm, perfect peace, without skipping a beat, were singing hymns to God. And he could not believe the calm that, that was present with them. He asked them afterward, were you terrified? He said, no, not at all. What about your wives and children? Were they scared? No, they weren't terrified either. Their, the example of their faith and the peace of soul that they had heavily influenced him. So that when he got to New York, he sought out a Moravian uh, gathering and there was converted to Christ and the rest is history. One of the treasures that I consider that I have is this book called Roads to Christ. Um, I've never seen another one like it. I was fortunate enough to have won it in an eBay auction while I was in college. All it is is a compilation of great men's testimonies. I love just reading them. At the longest, they're six pages long. Some are just two pages. They're varied. They're manifold in their stories. Some testify of long, vicious struggles with God. Others testify that, like Hudson Taylor, great missionaries in here, testified he was raised in a Christian home, and his father and his mother constantly pressed upon him the benefit of trusting Christ. And so his conversion, while not as dramatic as some, is powerful to read. And uh, I think many people identify with it. There's a man in here as I was preparing for this sermon that you've probably never heard of. He was a French man, and I'm probably butchering his name. Eugene Duhardine was his name. He was a Catholic priest. And I especially liked reading his conversion. I wanted to read bits and pieces of it to you. Maybe just summarize it to you. But he was a Catholic priest. He wasn't looking to be converted to a a Protestant faith at all. In fact, he had a lot of animosity and viewed Protestants as heretics. But he was in a bookstore and met a lady in this bookstore who was a Christian. And she could see, obviously, he was a Catholic priest, and so she started urging him to accept Christ (laughs) and pressing upon him of his great need for the Savior and to abandon his self-righteousness. He resisted and resisted and resisted, Until finally, she convinced him to at least have a conversation with a Protestant pastor. Now, he went to this meeting, he agreed to go to the meeting, and and, uh, he wasn't at all, again, looking to be converted. In fact, when he got to the meeting with this Protestant pastor the next week, he he sits down with the pastor, and the pastor says, "So, so what questions do you have? And he responds, none. Oh, the pastor hadn't been told by this lady the situation. He's like, I I don't have any questions, actually. I don't know why I'm here. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the pastor just began communicating the gospel to him. But what impressed the priest was when they closed and finished the meeting, this man prayed. And uh, I want to read that, that part of it to you, how this prayer of this pastor affected this priest. The pastor's name that he had met with was Mr. Minode, and he proposed that they should kneel down and pray to God for his own enlightening grace. The priest was astonished. The manner, quote-unquote, he says, in which the pastor prayed struck me most of all. He recited no formula. He made no sign of the cross. He spoke to God out of the abundance of his heart as a child speaks to his father. It was the first time that I had ever heard such a prayer. So touching was the simplicity with which the pastor prayed to the Lord that I was perfectly astonished. It was so different to the way in which I had myself prayed. This priest had a faith. It wasn't a faith according to knowledge. It wasn't a faith according to truth. And when he encountered it, it blew him away. Now, he wasn't converted right then and there, but he did. Uh, his conscience was awakened. He continued meeting with this pastor until by and by he was convinced of his need for the Savior and to abandon his self-righteousness, his religious dogmas, and come to simple faith in Jesus. And he moved away. His, his family had been generations for priests. They all acted out in hostility, trying to get him not to convert. Um, and by the way, we have our missionaries here who are going to be going to a very Catholic place, so that touches home with you. But God witnessed to this man, first and foremost, not simply through the doctrines of the pastor, but through his prayer, because it was a living faith that the pastor had. And the doctrine that he believed was embodied in that living faith. What's your testimony? I believe each and every one of us should be able to write six or seven pages of our testimony. Maybe not six or seven. You should be able to communicate yourself how Christ saved you. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul does that. It's beautiful. There's, there's so many truths that we could focus on this morning. I'm going to move fairly fast because there's a lot to cover, but I want to get to the end to some principles that we can hang some truths on that I, I desire to build on here in the future. So here's our outline. We're going to look at uh, the end of Acts 21 into chapter 22. I'm going to consider Paul's misguided zeal against the Christians. And then we're going to, as he recounts it, look at the moment of confrontation and realization that he had with Jesus. From there, the moment of repentance and faith, which leads to his meeting with Ananias and the revelation of God's will for Paul. The Lord's message to Paul three years later while he was in Jerusalem, which leads to the Jewish um, pride and self-righteousness being exposed and to Paul's further persecution. So with that, let's journey on through the book of Acts. We, we left off last week um, with Paul nearly being ripped apart by the Jewish mob. So much so that the Roman centurion saw what was going on, sent two 
centurions at least down to rescue Paul. At least 200 soldiers were involved in the rescue of Paul. That's how vicious and how large the mob was that had gathered around Paul in order to rip him to pieces. Those soldiers carried Paul up to the barracks, but Paul stops them. And this is what's so astonishing. We covered it last week. I'll cover it again here. But at the end of chapter 21, beginning verse 37, it says this, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? Tribune said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? We covered who that was. We're not going to cover it again. But Paul replied to this man, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. That's where we left off. Verse 40, when the tribune had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make for you, before you. Before we move on uh, to really look at the moment of Paul's, um, Paul's testimony, I want you to notice the courage of Paul here. This, this is perhaps what strikes me the greatest in this passage. Paul, having just been rescued by the Romans out of this mob's frenzy, asks the Romans to let him go so that he can talk to him. How many of you would have the courage to do that? <laughs> I would have been looking at the Roman soldiers and, and been like, thank you, get me out of here. Paul stops them. We, we covered this last week, but I'll bring it up again. Paul's love for his countrymen, for the fellow Jews, was so great that he viewed this not as an opportunity to escape, but as an opportunity to share. That's the eyes and reasoning of faith, by the way. It looks at situations differently than a natural carnal man does. People who live in their flesh, who would be in this situation, would want to escape it. Paul, walking in faith, stands in the midst and says, Hey, We've got 200 soldiers here. We've got a mop. Perfect. <laughs> what a platform. But the respect he has too. He speaks to the Romans in Greek. He turns to the Jews and speaks to them in Hebrew, meeting them where they're at. Astonishing. It also reveals Paul's brilliance. He was a brilliant man. I love thinking about this point. It's a revealing point. It's a challenging point. But it's a point that we need to consider. The source of Paul's courage was because of the love of Christ that controlled him, as he told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5. In Romans 9, verse 2 and 3, this is what he said. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And here's what's astonishing. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. How many of you have ever actually wished hell upon yourself that your family or friends might be saved. That's what Paul just said. I could wish that myself be accursed. Obviously, as the elect, that's not going to happen. But that's how much love and sacrifice was involved in Paul's affection for his fellow Jews. And we're going to see, he didn't, he didn't speak to them. They, these men almost killed him. He didn't speak to them in anger, resentment. He didn't get up on the barrack steps and say, cut it out! <laughs> Rebuke him. No. His heart was full of compassion, full of love. As 
reminds you of Christ on the cross as they're nailing him to it. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Perfect love. That's what the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Leading up to this point, though, this, this, Paul had been tested before. You remember my struggle in the last two weeks in interpreting these passages and how before last week's message was the whole idea of everywhere Paul went, the Holy Spirit was testifying to him, chains and afflictions await you, Paul. And then his closest companions, Luke, Timothy, Philip, all urging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul was resolute. I'm ready to die for my Lord. It was Paul's moment of testing so that when he got to the hour where the chains and afflictions met him, he wasn't moved. He didn't wait, in other words, till the situation came upon him. When he got to the situation, he'd resolved his will to Christ. That's why he could stand in perfect love. He'd already resolved his life to the Lord. He'd already, in essence, died. If chains and afflictions await me, I'm fine with that. As he would say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. People who come into a situation like this, if they've still been living for themselves, they would want to bail. Paul's already been living the, the crucified life. He then very respectfully, as I said, speaks in Hebrew, Without anger, without shortness, with any such attitude, he begins to give his kinsmen his own testimony in Judaism. And what's so important about how Paul goes about speaking to the Jews is that he's bringing this audience to an understanding that at one point he himself was just like them. That also aids Paul, why Paul could be so calm. I know what they're feeling. I know what they're thinking. I've been there. So, the claim, if you remember from last week, was that Paul was anti-Jewish. Paul was not anti-Jewish. He declares here in this passage, in verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, this is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem in order to be punished. Not only was Paul brought up, born a Jew, brought up in Jerusalem, but he was taught under Gamaliel. Every single one of those Jews in the crowd would have known who this man was. He was the most revered and respected of the Jewish rabbis. He taught most accurately, most authoritatively, the law of God as far as, as well as the rabbinic traditions of the Old Testament. Paul was reared under that man. Paul tells us here in Philippians, uh, if you want to turn there real quick, even more of his pedigree. We'll read this quickly. He doesn't share all these details in this account in Acts, but here in Philippians, he says his pedigree is even more than what he let on. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The problem with religion is this. We build a pedigree, like Paul just said, and we hang our worth and our justification and our righteousness on that pedigree. And you know what each and every one of us here needs to do with that? Wad it up and throw it away. Because it matters nothing. It matters nothing. The hardest people in the world to meet with the gospel claims on their own life are those people who think they're okay. Those people who hold to a form of righteousness but have no power. Those people who've lived in sin, debauchery, excessiveness, whatever, when the gospel comes to them, you find that they're very ready for it because they know the miseries of sin. It's the people like the Jews that Paul's encountering here who think they're okay. I keep the law. Look at my pedigree. I'm a Jew of Jews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I've done everything right. I'm blameless according to the law. Yeah, but it doesn't save you and it doesn't mean a thing. Those are the hardest people in the world to reach. And that's why Paul starts with this. Because he's got to make them understand, I know your pedigree. I know your zeal. I know your traditions. I know why you're angry. But listen to my testimony. Because if I were to stand up that pedigree to each and every one of you, you couldn't stand with me. Couldn't stand with me. Paul giving the Jews his pedigree, he's leaving no place for them to argue that Paul is simply ignorant of what they're mad about. Our foolish hearts will come up with a thousand excuses of why we won't believe in the gospel, why we won't submit to the gospel, and Paul is working to leave no excuse uncovered. They couldn't stand in that crowd listening to Paul and say, oh, you're just ignorant of the Jewish traditions. No, he's not. He knew very well, more than they, the Jewish traditions, the law. On the contrary, if you were to hold up a resume to Paul's, he'd beat you out every time. Paul said this in Galatians 1.14, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries among his own countrymen, being more extremely zealous for the ancestral traditions. But as we read in Philippians, he counted as all rubbish. Every one of us, when we come to Christ, we come bare and empty-handed with nothing to offer. Nothing. That's why the gospel first is simply receiving. You have nothing to give. I've said this, uh, I've talked to some people lately, I don't remember if I said this from the pulpit or not, but there's a confusion in churches and among pastors even where they present the gospel this way, that hey, just give your life to Christ. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is this, receive the Lord Jesus and be saved. Because Christ and giving your life to Christ is the act of consecration, not the act of conversion. When you are converted to Christ, then you give yourself to Him. But you first must receive Him. And that's the rub. The Jews had not gotten to that place yet. So what Paul's just done first is, is at least logically disarmed the idea that embodied this mob, that Paul was anti-Jewish, He's trying to leave this mob without an excuse to reason with him, to look at these things. But he moves on. 
So he was advancing in Judaism. He was persecuting those of the way. The high priests and the whole council of elders, he said, could bear him witness. This is important. Every part of Paul's testimony, by the way, he has witnesses. Council of elders, the high priest could bear witness. Hey, yeah, he's telling the truth. We did give this man right here letters to go persecute Christians. That's true. So every part of Paul's testimony, you'll see he's got witnesses to verify. It's interesting. So verse 6, he picks it up. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon. By the way, at noon is when the sun is at its strength, right? This is important. At noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. The moment of confrontation, this is the heart of my message this morning. There's two important facts concerning Christ's confrontation with Paul. First, it was a heavenly light and a heavenly voice coming to speak to him. In other words, Paul is stressing the divine nature of this encounter. He was simply traveling on on the road to Damascus at noon. The sun is at its strength. And all of a sudden, there's a light brighter than the sun surrounding him, causing all of them to fall on their face. How do you explain this? He's stressing the divine nature of this encounter. He says the same thing in Acts 26 before King Agrippa, verse 13. He knows that the light was brighter than the sun. In other words, what he's telling these Jews, what was brighter to the sun, brighter than the sun to a Jew, was the glory of God. That's what he's arguing. It was the glory of God that radiated around us. You see the same description in Revelation chapter 1 when John sees the face of the one standing before him. Ezekiel 1, 27 and 28 has the same description, this radiant glory shining brighter than the sun. But Paul also reveals to us that the voice coming from this brightness, first of all, knew him. He addressed him by name, Saul. And not only does he know him by name, he arrests Paul's, Saul's attention. Saul! Saul! Why are you persecuting me? He quickly got Saul's attention. He asked Saul that question, why are you persecuting me? Which would transform Saul, the persecutor of Christians, to Paul, the one being persecuted. As we've been talking about testimonies, This is the first important point of any testimony. There's a moment of confrontation. There's a moment of confrontation in everyone's life. I don't care if you're a child and the confrontation is fairly minimal, or if you've been living in degradation and it's severe. There's a moment of realization, I've been an enemy of God. Now, why this is so powerful to Paul is, as Jesus said in the Gospels to his disciples, he said this, there will come a day when people will persecute you and they'll think they're doing God a service. That was Paul. 
Paul thought he was actually in the will of God and killing Christians. They were blasphemers. They were heretics. They were maligning God. They were worshiping this blasphemer Jesus. And it was his duty to stone him, to kill him, to rid the world of him. He thought he was doing the will of God. How severe and how dramatic would have been the realization to Paul that he was actually an enemy of God. It would have shattered his world. It would have absolutely devastated Paul. The two men with Paul were presumably just as zealous as Paul was in journeying with him. They're the next witnesses. Paul notes that they saw the light but didn't understand the voice of the one speaking to him. Some claim here, and I say this as a side note, but some claim there's a contradiction in the Scripture, so I want to equip you in order to handle that. In chapter 9, Paul records this, or Luke records this, the men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Um, there's no contradiction in here. They heard the voice. They saw the light. But they didn't see the person and they couldn't understand the voice. Okay? There's just different details of the account. Um, yeah, that's all I want to say that. I don't want to spend too much time on that. It's not my main point. So, let's move on here. Um, so Paul saw the heavenly light, the Lord's voice, and the two awestruck witnesses in this initial confrontation and realization. Now, I want you to think about this too, because as I read this passage, I don't... I don't think this was just like a quick, quick, bang, bang kind of confrontation and encounter. I think the Lord appeared to Paul and they, it, he arrested their attention, one with the brightness of the light and then the voice that stopped them in their tracks. And I think when Jesus asked that question, why are you persecuting me? Paul's answer, who are you, Lord? Jesus responds, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I think there was a pause there. I don't think that Jesus simply said that and said, now go get up and go into Damascus. I think the Lord let the truth settle in. And why I say that is because of this. You see that happen in other accounts. Our conscience and our hearts are such where difficult realizations have to sink in. It takes time. It's hard. We resist it, we fight against it, we run from it. And for Paul to really grasp what Jesus had just said to him, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. You've got to realize how dramatic that would have been for Paul. Every single thing of who Paul was, what he'd done, what he hung his hat on, was just exposed. Everything. Everything. It would have been absolutely devastating. We have a tendency, I know this as a parent, when your children are in trouble or when they do something wrong and you need to correct them, you see the pain and the anguish sometimes of their heart. And what's your first inclination as a parent? You want to go up and scoop them up and hug them, right? But sometimes that actually cuts the work that needs to be done in their heart short. Sometimes the best thing for you to do is to let them wrestle in that anguish a little bit. Because then they'll remember that sting. 
There's a time to come and give them the oil of grace, the healing of grace. But there's also a time when the scourge of the law needs to have its effect upon a hardened heart. You let it. You let it. Sometimes the best thing when you've warned a child two or three times, don't touch the stove, it's hot, is to let him touch it and burn himself. Because then they'll learn, don't touch the stove. I think that's what was going on here personally. I, I, I can't imagine just, just being a bang-bang transaction. The moment of repentance and faith. I love looking at this, verse 8 through 11. First, Paul answered this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you per- persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Now, he uses the term Lord. It's the word kurios in the Greek. It means one who has all authority, all power, and the right to exercise it. He recognized this as a divine encounter. Now, at this point, he didn't know it was Jesus. That's important. He recognized whoever this voice is, shining in the glory of God, is Lord. And he addresses him as such. It wasn't a moment of faith yet. Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul's next statement is in verse 10. I said, what shall I do, Lord? Same word, kurios, but a completely different heart. Who are you? What shall I do? Now that, that question, what shall I do? Simple question to understand, but you've got to, you've got to recognize the repentance of mind and heart that just took place in Paul. No way before this encounter would Paul have ever asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? Never. He hated him. He killed those who sought to follow Jesus. This is, this is an important point to me. A penitent response, because I think we often get a little messed up in our doctrine when we confuse this point. Repentance literally means a change of mind. Now, most theologians and pastors stress the fact that repentance means you change your actions, which is good. But if you stress the change of action before a change of mind, you get it wrong. If you have not had a change of mind first, change your actions, you're simply a moralist. It's all you are. You're not a believer. I'll give you my testimony with this. I began, began coming under conviction over my life, uh, my senior year in high school. And I went off to college with my whole plan is to just literally cut, cut loose in every way that I could. And live and do exactly what I wanted to do. But I came under conviction over this. And so instead of living that way, I started attending Bible studies. Started playing my djembe in, in this Bible study. Started hanging out with Christians. I was reforming my life outwardly and morally. But repentance had not yet taken place in my heart. I was not a believer yet. And I wouldn't become a believer until my sophomore year in college. So you can reform your life outwardly. You may live in sin openly now and stop living in sin openly and still not be a believer. That's why repentance is so important. That's why I highlight this question. Paul had a change of mind first. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? There's the yieldness, the yielded soul 
The first act of, of a believer. My mind's been changed. I recognize you as Lord. What do you want? That's a Christian. Paul would be confronted and forced to begin examining everything, as I said. His misguided zeal against Christians, his hatred for what he thought was blasphemy, turned out that the Christians were right to worship Jesus as Lord. He himself wrote in Romans 10, the great confession of the church is this, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you'll be saved. That's what he just did. His zeal for the law turned out to be not according to knowledge, as he would say of the Jews in Romans 9. What he thought was a service to God in killing these blasphemers was actually an act of persecution against the Lord himself. And what's most important, the one whom Paul raged against as a blasphemer, as a false messiah, was the Lord of glory. This is so important in our testimony Every single one of us live as enemies of God. It's a hard truth to swallow. But if you don't swallow that truth, the break from your sinful nature, the break from the world that's required to be a disciple of Christ will never truly happen. Because you'll continue in these things that are anti-Christ, that separated you from Christ. You must recognize first and foremost my utter depravity before God. I am his enemy. I am persecuting him. It is my sin that nailed him to the cross. In short, in a moment, all of Paul's pedigree as a Jew melted away. And Paul's pedigree was such that it was the self-righteous kind of pedigree. The hardest to penetrate. But God penetrated it. That's why Jesus would say in the Gospels, as the disciples said, well, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus said, well, with men it's impossible. <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. He can penetrate the darkest and the hardest of hearts and cause His light, as He wrote to, first, to 2 Corinthians 4, cause the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ to shine in our hearts, just like it had here. So what we say and believe about Jesus is paramount. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Those are your options that C.S. Lewis famously outlined. Either Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and he was lying knowing he was lying, or he claimed to be the Messiah and actually believed he was the Messiah, but he wasn't, which would make him a lunatic. Or Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and he really was, which makes him Lord. You have no other options in dealing with Jesus. Jesus was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. And our response to each one of those is paramount. If he's a liar, don't listen to him. If he's a lunatic, don't listen to him. If he's Lord, bow your knee. That's it. If he's Lord and has all authority, all power, and has the right to exercise it, our proper response is simply what Paul did here. What do you want from me? I have no claim on myself. My life is not my own. Paul's penitent response records everything. So important. So Paul, uh, immediately what Jesus said to Paul is simply rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Simple command, but Paul obeys it. 
He needed help obeying it. He couldn't see because of the brightness of the light. As you know from Acts 9, scales came over his eyes and would blind him for at least three days. And so he had to be led by the hand by those who were with him. So there again are the witnesses. I, I often think what was for those three days before Ananias came to him and, and, and there's just silence from God. The mourning, the brokenness that Paul was enduring in Damascus as he sat there waiting for the next message. What, what to do? Um, if you've ever been in that place, you, you know what I'm saying. Sometimes enduring brokenness is so difficult, but it's so needed. It's the cleansing, it's the, 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 uh, the refreshing of the soul. Here's what the old Puritan Thomas Watson said, Faith lives in a broken heart. True faith is always in a heart bruised for sin. Saving faith always grows in a heart humbled for sin, in a weeping eye and a tearful conscience. If there's one message you can communicate to people who are broken and struggling, whether believer or non-believer, is that God is near to them. You know, when people are broken, you don't bring the scourge of the law. They've been broken. That's when you pour on the gospel oil for them and tell them of the great love and forbearance of Christ. The covenant, as we read in Psalm 25, of those who fear Him, God reveals His covenant that He will never leave them. He will never forsake them. That He carries their burdens. That's a lively faith. So often the Lord uses brokenness to bring our heart into the proper position where faith can thrive. But if you've noticed in yourself, brokenness is probably the one thing you resist being most. We have such a hard time of allowing ourselves to truly be broken as believers or as non-believers. And yet it's the one condition environment. Faith thrives. And here's Oscar Wilde, of all people, said this, How else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? Let's move on. Meeting Ananias in the revelation of God's will. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Again, here's the third witness, right? The high priests, the elders were the first. The two men walking with Paul were the second group of witnesses. Here's the third, Ananias. And he says of Ananias, he was a devout Jew according to the law. Not only that, he was well spoken of by all Jews in Damascus. It would be difficult, in other words, to discredit Ananias' testimony. <laughs> Third witness. He came to me in verse 13, standing by me, he simply says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. We're not going to go back and visit Ananias' struggle in Acts 9 of coming to Paul, right? Ananias knew who Paul was. And we, hey, Lord, are you sure this is the guy? Yes, he's a chosen vessel of mine. Okay, I'll go. I love that. I love the fact that when I preach to Ananias, is, he's not an elder. He's just a lay person. <laughs> and it was just a simple layman, just like y'all. You're, you're not hired out of church. You might not be in church leadership, but that's who God chose to lead the great Apostle Paul into the will of God. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I love that. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight. So there again, the miraculous happens to Paul. Get to my notes there. Okay. So Ananias then says this in verse 14. The God of our fathers 
appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. That's an Old, Old Testament messianic title. And to hear a voice from his mouth. So not only did Paul see, he also heard this messianic one. Verse 15, For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now that statement, don't read that too fast. This is Paul the Pharisee, right? The Jew of Jews. And Ananias says, Paul, you're going to be a witness to everyone. Why is Paul standing before the mob? Because Paul was bringing Gentiles in. (laughs) We're going to see that in a second. We see the thorough work of repentance had taken place, though. Paul didn't fudge. To everyone? No, just to the Jews, Lord. That's how we often treat God, right? I'll follow you and I'll do what you want on these terms. No. Here's here's God's will for you. Okay, great. I'll go to the Gentiles. (laughs) I love it. You'll be a witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on His name. So again, all this detail is important because Paul's making the case for God's lordship. He's making the case to these Jews of God's sovereign decision. Paul was not looking for any of this. He didn't set out to Damascus to find the Lord. The Lord found him. He didn't set out to Damascus to discern God's will. He already thought he was doing it. And he certainly didn't think that God's will involved him going to the Gentiles to be a witness for Jesus. But what Paul's doing is this. Y'all's understanding of the sovereign God is wrong. Everything that's happened to me has been his sovereign choice and direction. I'm not, I'm not doing this because I chose to do this. I was not looking for this, but I could not deny it when Christ laid a hold of me. So we still see though, here's how faith works. I love this. Faith is first and always a a position where you're receiving. But there's also the aspect of faith acting. It's not faith acting and then receiving. It's receiving and then acting. John Calvin, and unfortunately a lot of Calvinists don't get this. It's frustrating. But John Calvin himself and his institutes talked about the nature of faith being first passive and then active. There is a human responsibility. But it's only after the Lord has come. We have a responsibility of obedience to what God says. It's not simply a sovereign God who's like a dictator. That's the Muslim view of God. There is a human responsibility. We see it here. Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Literally, having called on His name. So it's not the baptism that washes away His sins. It's the fact that Paul has called on His name. That's the uh, proper order there. I'm not going to dwell on that as well, though. But Paul followed up with obedient faith to Ananias' directions. Now, we begin verse 17, and a period of about three years has elapsed from when Ananias came to when Paul goes and returns to Jerusalem there in verse 17. So when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw... Him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. We went through this before when I went uh, in Acts 10, or at the end of Acts 9. What Paul is saying there is, when the Lord tells Paul, get out of Jerusalem, they're not going to receive your testimony. What he's saying is, Lord, they know who I am. In other words, if I go to the next city, they know who I am. If I go to the next city, they know who I am. He's saying, Lord, I'll just stay here and die here. The Lord had a different idea. Verse 21, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now these two statements that Paul just makes, that Jesus again sovereignly said to him, they will not accept your testimony about me. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Those two statements, verse 22 says, up to that point, the Jews listened to him. But when they heard Gentiles, they became infuriated again. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Nonetheless, before I get to that, I want you to just stop and think again about Paul's courage here. Do you think that Paul knew in saying these statements of Jesus that it would infuriate those people? Absolutely. Did he withhold it? Nope. That's what you want in a minister, isn't it? (laughs) You want someone who's going to be courageous enough to tell someone the truth. We all need it from time to time. Some, like me, more often than not. But of all things, Paul said to the Ephesian church, I withheld nothing profitable from you, even if it's by way of rebuke or correction. I held nothing back, even if it cost me. I don't know if Paul had a big apple in his throat as he was about to say these statements. I don't know if he said it with the coolest of ease. I don't know. But Paul said it, knowing that it might cost him dearly. It enraged the mob, as we see. But nonetheless, it was the truth. And it's what the, Jew, it's what the Jews needed to wrestle with. So when Paul said that in verse 22... It exposes the Jewish pride. It exposes their self-righteousness. As they were uh, listening to us, they said this in 22, Away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, it was a common practice in Mideast, grief, or you see it at funerals and throwing dirt. They still do it today. But that statement, they were throwing off their cloaks. What they were getting ready to do was go find stones to stone Paul. Remember, when Stephen was stoned, what did the Jews do? They laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul. So they picked, they were picking up stones, getting ready to chunk them. Seeing this, verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So the self-righteous, proud Jews, they could not bear to hear Paul declare that the God of Israel would actually move to the Gentiles. This was unthinkable for them. But it was true. I want you to let this sink in, guys, because our pride is no different in nature. It's no different than the Jews. How badly pride distorts our view and understanding of truth. Paul told them the truth, and it was unthinkable to them. And the only reason is not because it didn't make sense. It was because their pride prohibited it from sinking in. 
I can, I, mean, I can give my own testimony. I can give other testimony. I had people telling me the truth for years. And I, I understood it, but I would not receive it. It enraged me. That's what pride and self-righteousness does. It is one of the most difficult things to overcome in bringing people to faith. Because, and, and this isn't simply people outside of the church, it's people inside of the church that need to be converted. There's a nominal faith they have, but their pride and self-righteousness forbids the truth from penetrating. They became furious. And then real quick, I want to cover this, and then I want to get to our applications. Verse 22 through 29, as we've already read, pick it up in verse 24. The tribune ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's the same flogging Jesus endured. It was the whip with the pieces of metal and glass and bone. It was often a death sentence. So he ordered Paul to be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, and again, this is the cruelty of the Romans. In stretching him out, it would actually cause the back to be filleted worse. To be, when you stretch out the skin and then cut it, it just rips it open more. This would have been severe for Paul. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, it's interesting that Paul waited till after he'd been stretched out to say anything, but maybe he was hoping that they'd come to their senses. <laughs> the injustice they're about to do. But Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Two charges there. Roman citizens were, were not permitted to be flogged because it was so severe. But secondly, he was uncondemned. Even if he wasn't a Roman citizen, he needed to be condemned first. Two serious charges that the centurion is made aware of. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Now remember, Paul had told the tribune he was a Roman citizen. Look at it. In verse uh, 39 of 21, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. It's the injustice of people. They don't care, right? <laughs> but Paul holds them to it. So when the sin... Uh, Verse 27, so the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, could add again, yes. <laughs> That's not the right heart. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. Now what's interest, interesting, um, you actually weren't allowed to buy your citizenship so what this man confesses is that I bribed an official. And the, the Claudius Lysias was his name. People who bought their citizenship in this way usually took the name of the one to whom they was granted by. Claudius Lysias was the emperor. So this man probably knew the emperor of Rome at the time when he bought his citizenship. He bribed him, got his citizenship. But Paul's citizenship was much more noble. It was by birth. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. If they had gone through with it, it could have meant a death sentence for them. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Severe consequences could have been pressed by Paul. Paul dealt with him in grace and truth. 
What's some applications for us? I'm going to touch on these now because this will become something important when we begin looking at discipleship. Looking at Paul's conversion. First, the definite confrontation that he had with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's confrontation with the Lord is the same. It's not. I mean, I just read this book, how this book, Roads to Christ. They're different. But there is a confrontation nonetheless that must take place. I've seen this in my own girls at a young age. I've sat with both Natalie and Autumn as they wept over sin. And it's beautiful. There's a confrontation that needs to happen when we realize we've been kicking and persecuting against Christ. So there's a definite confrontation. There's a definite profession and submission to Christ as Lord. Now, I don't think that when you come to faith, you're immediately and fully submitted to Christ as Lord. I I think that happens in degrees. I think you can be, but most often the Lord has to work it out of us, right? And continue to sanctify us. But nonetheless... There's a definite submission to Christ as Lord. Grace is free. You receive it. And our response is what? Submit as Lord to Him. That's the mark of a Christian. So someone who doesn't live in submission to Christ as Lord, at the very least, you're living in disobedience. At worst, you're not His. That's a disciple Someone who professes Christ as Lord. As Peter would say this, 1 Peter 3, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. That is what a disciple is. If Christ is Lord, then He needs to be Lord of all. He will have preeminence in every area and every aspect of our life. And when we're not in submission to Him, as Hebrews 12 talks about, He will discipline us. And the word he uses there is he will rip the hide off of us if he has to. But he does it out of love. Because his lordship is one of kindness, of grace, one of peace, one of comfort. And if he were to leave us to our own selfish ways, we would ruin ourselves. So there's a submission to Christ as Lord that we see in Paul's conversion. Third, there's a humble, obedient faith following his profession. Paul opens and closes the book of Romans saying this, that he was commissioned as an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith. He opens and closes that great book with that statement. Faith is obedient. So again, if we profess to have faith and are not obedient to him, it's a spurious, it's a a vain, or it's a devilish type of faith like we'll see here in just a second. But Paul after his conversion, what are some marks of Paul after his conversion? Paul humbly accepted the situations he found himself as God's will. That's the life of faith. right? You humbly accept, hey, God, you've brought me here. I'm not going to try and get out of it. I want to see your will in it. Second, we see in Paul, he turned these circumstances into opportunity to testify of Jesus, of his saving and converting power, with incredible cost to himself. He took the opportunity. Third, Paul didn't threaten or revile his persecutors. He loved them. It's what he wrote to the Romans to do in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Right? Just as the Lord himself had said. First Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2, 21-23. To this you've been called, to follow in his steps. He who, re- who was reviled didn't revile in return, but kept submitting himself to God. So we see Paul doing this. 
But he could do it because love invaded his heart. Fourth, Paul boldly exalted Christ. His testimony was not about him. So many people's testimony when you listen to it, it's more about them than it is the Lord. Paul took the opportunity in his own testimony to exalt Christ. The thoroughness of his own conversion. Fifth, Paul, as I've already mentioned, showed selfless love. That's the true mark of any disciple of Christ, right? And that's in contrast to the Jews he's talking to, and it's in contrast to who Paul himself used to be. He showed selfless, sacrificial love. John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, Greater love has no one than this, than he who lays his life down for his friends. Paul's embodying that. It's the greatest mark of a believer. And I say that, the greatest mark of a believer is not your knowledge of theology, it's not your knowledge of doctrine. He who understands most, loves most. There's a correlation that can't be separated. If your heart is loveless, you really know nothing about Christ, despite systems of doctrine and theology. Consideration of saving faith. What is saving faith? Well, first, true faith is life-changing faith. The passage there in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul would finally get to the point with the Corinthians to say, test yourself to see if Christ lives in you. Do you not know if He's in you? Matthew 7, Jesus gives that awful warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I'll say to them, I never knew you. Saving faith, true saving faith is life changing. So in examining your own life and your own profession of faith, how is your life different pre-Christ and post-Christ? If it's not different, that should cause alarm in you. Saving faith is, bears lasting fruit. Jesus gives the parable in Mark 4 and other Gospels record it. Of the parable of many soils, right? The Gospel is, is thrown out on many soils. And there was only one that bore fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but it bore fruit. So in your own life, again, in your own profession of faith, what's the righteous fruit being born in you? And I'm not talking about religious activities. I'm talking about the righteousness of Christ. Love, joy. Peace, patience, service to others. Bears fruit. Saving faith abides and it perseveres. The perseverance of the saints. John 15, great picture of the vine and the branches, right? If you are in Christ, you bear fruit. And that fruit abides. Revelation 2 and 3, in his letters to the churches, Jesus says this, everyone who has an ear and overcomes Here's what you can expect. But the last point there, there is a spurious, a vain, and even a devilish kind of faith that is so prevalent in the world that we as a church must examine ourselves with. Before I ever had saving faith, I had all of that. I had vain faith. I had facts about God that were true facts and that I believed, but I had not believed in. There's a gulf of difference in knowing things about someone and then knowing someone. I read a book um, at night with our girls. They've, they've loved it. It was a book I had as a kid 
on uh, Egypt's history, just the pyramids, the pharaohs, the embalming process. I, it's fascinating to me, and they become fascinated with it. So we read it. And I, I thought with this point this week, as, as I was developing these, I thought, you know, this, that's the point. My girls are learning facts about Egypt's history. They're learning facts about embalming processes and the pharaohs and the, the uh, pyramids. They, they know facts, but I guarantee you these archaeologists we're also reading about know those same facts in a different way. Those who made the discoveries, those who've handled each and every little piece, every discovery, they know it very different than I do. Same is true with the Lord. You can know things about Jesus. Do you know Him? Do you know His ways with man? Do you walk with Him? Do you talk with Him? As the song says. It's not enough to know things about Him. That can condemn you. What's needed is trust. There's a funny illustration I read of a man who was hiking on a cliffside with some others, and he fell off, and on his way down, he, he latched onto a branch that had been sticking out. So he's hanging onto this branch, and he looks down below, and all he can see is 1,500 feet of a rock bed down there. So he starts crying out, help, help, save me, help. And he hears a voice, let go of the branch and I will save you. You've got to trust me. So he hears the voice. The voice says, do you want me to help you? Yes, I want you to help me. But the man looks down again, sees, sees the rock bed below and he says, is there anyone else who can help me up there? <laughs> it's kind of what we do with the Lord, right? Lord, I want help, but, but not what you're offering. Is there anyone else? No, there's not. You come to Jesus as Jesus as Lord, or you're shut out. That's Jesus' own words. It is one of the most sobering truths to have to wrestle with the fact that myriads upon myriads upon myriads of people will profess to know Christ and in the end will be barred from heaven. What kind of faith do you have? We're going to examine that in greater detail in discipleship um, because it's important. A theology of saving faith, though, will transform not only an individual life, it'll transform a church. So it's important to talk about. With that, I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to pray. But take a moment yourselves, please, and just go before the Lord and... um, Reflect on these truths. Reflect on your own testimony. If you don't have a testimony, then that's cause for you to seek the Lord in conversion. Maybe you need a testimony. Maybe you need to know Jesus as Savior. And He's writing your testimony right now. On the other hand, if you do know Christ, think back upon how it is that He brought you to Himself. As John 6 says, No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws Him. Examine the Lord's grace toward you in drawing you to Himself and saving you. And offer up from your heart a word of thanks in this moment. Father God, we have so much to be humbled by, to be thankful for. So much sin as we read out of Psalm 25 that you have forgiven. Father, my prayer for our church, one, is that we would be truly converted people and that if there's any doubt in us, that we would settle that issue, that we would know we are His. As 1 John says, we can. We can have assurance that we are His child. And secondly, Lord, if we are His child and yet have been living in an unsubmitted way, 
where we've been living as our own Lord. Father, that you'd bring us back to your good and gracious Lordship over our life. Because you care for us. You are humble and meek, as you said. Your will for us is perfect and it is good and it is right. Not only that, it satisfies the soul. Father, help us to delight in you as Lord. Because you love us. Because you're for us. You care for us, Lord. We thank you for those truths. So we pray in Jesus' name.